2 Samuel 7 verses 18 to 29. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, sovereign Lord, and what is my family, that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant, and this decree, sovereign Lord, is for a mere human. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, sovereign Lord. For the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant. How great you are, sovereign Lord. There is no one like you, and there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth, that God went out to redeem as a people for himself, to make a name for himself, and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods before your people, whom you redeemed from Egypt. You have established your people Israel as your very own forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you promised, so that your name will be great forever. Then people will say, The Lord Almighty is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established in your sight. Lord Almighty, God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you. So your servant has found the courage to pray this prayer to you. Sovereign Lord, you are God. Your covenant is trustworthy, and you have promised these good things to be your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, sovereign Lord, have spoken, and with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. Amen. Thank you, brother. Please do keep your Bibles open. I'll add my welcome, by the way, to that of uh, Patrick. If you don't know, my name's Ben. I'm the pastor here at uh, Grace Anglican at night. Let me lead us in prayer and we'll get stuck into this uh, wonderful part of God's Word together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank and praise you that you speak to us in your Word, the Bible. We pray that uh, you'd enable us to uh, rejoice and tremble at your Word tonight. And we would set aside any distractions that get in the way of us uh, meditating upon your Word and being changed and transformed by it in the power of your Spirit that makes us more like Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Brothers and sisters, as followers of Jesus, we know that prayer is an amazing privilege. Our God is the loving Father who delights to give good gifts to his children. And he's also the all-powerful Lord who, of course, is able to answer prayer. And he does so in accordance with his will. And yet I suspect that many of us will know already from experience that prayer can at times prove difficult. As a matter of fact, every now and then I think that I mention it in a room this size, there's got to be at least one person who just feels desperately guilty about their prayer life or lack thereof. It can actually be an area in our Christian lives in which we feel deficient, despondent, sometimes even defeated. Uh, One of my good friends throughout Bible college who who, um, uh, suffered clinical depression said one of the times she knew it was getting really bad was when she thought it was just impossible to pray. I thought that was, yeah, really sort of interesting and and sad. And Anyway, in Luke chapter 11, 
Even the disciples who, being Jews, uh, traditionally would have practised morning and evening prayer, even they and had been close enough with Jesus to see him pray, even they were yet compelled to say, Lord, teach us to pray. So if prayer is sometimes, or even often, something you struggle with, well, you're actually in good company, even with the disciples at one level. And so I'm really pleased to say that in his word for us tonight, our God, through his gracious dealings with King David that we just read about, will give us a powerful and compelling reason for the activity of prayer, and I mean regular prayer, and also a helpful reminder of why prayer is something that makes sense for we who are followers of Jesus. It's my hope that in light of what we learn from God's Word tonight, even if it is only to a small degree, that our prayer lives can't help but be revitalised. Now, in case you weren't here this time last week, when we looked at the first half of this very momentous chapter, 2 Samuel 7, uh, James Squire not only gave us a brilliant explanation of God's great revelation to King David, but also helpfully enabled us to see it in light of God's big picture of salvation, God's big, what I call, promise plan of salvation. You know that first song we sang, this is God's only plan? He's always had one plan of salvation that gets more and more revealed as we go through the scriptures. So here is uh, the Ben Pakula effort at the super condensed summary version of all of that stuff in visual form. Obviously in the beginning God creates the heavens and the earth. The pinnacle of creation is Adam and Eve, humanity, but it didn't take long before humanity decided, you know what God, we don't want you as God, We get to choose what's right and wrong. We're going to be the boss, not you. That rebellion, uh, that sin, we call it the fall. And from a holy God, it results in the curse, including the curse, of course, of decay and death entering into the world. But God is a gracious God, and so he chooses a man named Abraham, and instead of cursing, Genesis 12, 1 to 3, he gives blessing. And by way of blessing, the promises to Abraham include a seed, singular, which which can mean offspring, a great lot of descendants, or a singular offspring, it sort of means both. So he will eventually become a great nation. And that nation will need somewhere to live, and so God promises that uh, Abraham's descendants will have a wonderful land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the promised land, the land of Israel, and that somehow, eventually, through this process of God's promise being fulfilled to Abraham, blessing would eventually be made available for the whole world, for all the families of the earth, literally, Genesis 12. Now, that nation does grow, and after a while and a whole lot of drama, they end up in this place called Egypt, and in Egypt, they are enslaved for roughly 400 years. But God had uh, ordained that to happen and chose to redeem or to rescue his people out of Egypt with the mighty uh, event that we call the Exodus. The, 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 the quickest way to think about the Exodus is the gospel of the Old Testament. It's where God comes to redeem a people to be his very own. Uh, So he pulls them out of there and then a whole bunch of stuff happens, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, etc. And then eventually Israel say, we want a king like the nations around us. God says, that's a bad idea, but okay. And they get Saul and he turns out to be a dud. But God chooses David and David becomes the king. And eventually after a whole lot of hoo-ha, he becomes 
the king over united Israel. And he's got a nice big palace. I think James called it his sweet, sweet palace. That's what he's sort of hanging out in. Uh, uh, Hiram, king of Tyre, had, had made him this big house. But when he's there and they've driven out the enemies in the promised land and David's there sitting in his nice big palace, he sort of goes, hey, wait a minute, God lives in this little tent. And so David thinks, here am I in a palace, God's in a little tent. No, we can't have that. We've got to upgrade for God. And so David thinks to himself, God... I want to build you a house, a big building to live in. And of course, if you're building for God, it's going to be called a temple. But whilst he's thinking about doing that, God comes to David via the prophet Nathan and he says to him, and this is one of the worst paraphrases I've ever done, as <laughs> Mayor Dave, I don't need a temple. I'll get one later, P.S. through Solomon. But while we're on the subject, Dave, I'm going to build you a house, and it's the same word, but it's a play on words because a house can mean the physical building, the, the brick thing that you live in, but it could also mean your family line, your dynasty, like my son lives in the house of Pakula, etc. And if he has a son or a daughter, they will live in the house of Pakula, etc. And so God's promise is that a descendant of David will rule on his throne over God's kingdom forever. Now, after that astounding and amazing revelation, part of the promised plan of God, we could just get on with the story of the life of David and the history of, of Israel in the book of 2 Samuel. But the writer slash compiler of 2 Samuel, thankfully, saw fit to include David's prayerful response to this amazing news. And David's prayer gives us great insight into the character and work of God at this most significant point of his revelation, as well as showing us the reason why prayer especially makes sense for God's people. And so we're going to go through the prayer tonight. The first thing David's prayer reminds us of is that our God is the God of promise. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but to have faith, trust in God, is actually to trust in God and what he has promised, his plan of salvation. And our passage starts with the words, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. If uh, chapter 7, verse 1 is on the same page of the Bible you read, it, no, it doesn't say it in the NIV, he dwelt in his big palace, but it's the same word, he sat. At the beginning of this chapter, David sat in his sweet, sweet palace. But now, after hearing this revelation, he goes into the little bunch of curtains with a wooden box in it and he sits in there. It's visually far less impressive, but for those who have eyes to see, it is the most impressive place in the universe. He's sitting now in the place where God has caused his name to dwell. And uh, continuing from verse 18, what does he do now that he's sitting there in the presence of God? Well, he says, who am I? Sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you've brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, Sovereign Lord, you've also spoken about the future of the house of your servant, and this decree, Sovereign Lord, is for all humanity. Now, I know that if you've got an NIV, it footnotes the little thing that says for all humanity. That is the correct translation. I'm not going to bore you and waste time now, but if you want to know why, come and ask me afterwards, but it is for all humanity. You see... Just like when God's promise was revealed to Abraham, Abraham knew it was for the purpose 
of bringing blessing to all humanity, to all the families of the earth. And so now David realises that the special singular offspring, the seed, if you like, of Abraham, would now be a king in the line of David, would now be a son of David. It is the same single promise plan of God, just that more of it has now been revealed than there was before. And so David is very humbled and he can't help but respond in praise of God's great promise that now involves him and his family. And so verse 20, what more can David say to you? Metaphorically, God, I'm speechless. What can I say? For you, God, know your servant, sovereign Lord, for the sake of your word and according to your will, you've done this great thing and made it known to your servant, to me, little old me. How great you are, sovereign Lord. There is no one like you and there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. And I've got to say, I actually think this is very distinctive about the true and living God, that he reveals plans and promises that come to pass in the way that, frankly, no other claim to deity really does, in my experience at least. So God's promise, now being revealed in greater detail to David than it was to Abraham, results in this humbled man, this king, but he's calling himself a servant, this humble servant, giving praise to God. By the way, notice that praise of God... And this is actually far more often the case than not. Praise of God is praise about God. David moves to the third person. What we have heard with our own ears. We have heard of God's greatness, which is why we tell of his goodness to others. You see, God doesn't actually need to be told how good he is. He kind of knows that, like he knows everything. Speaking of his great deeds in the hearing of others brings him great glory. Now, of course, it's right and fitting that the individual gives direct praise to God. Praise the Lord, all my soul, would write David in Psalm 103. But even then, it is actually designed to be sung in the hearing of of others. See, God's name is holy. As a matter of fact, it can't be any more holy. And yet you and I, I hope, rightly pray that his name would be hallowed, that is revered, recognised as holy. Well, that's, that's stupid to pray for God's sake, because his name, can't, he knows he's holy, he's perfectly. But we actually pray because we want other people to see the holiness of God. We want others to see our good deeds and glorify our Father who is in heaven, says Jesus. We want others to hear our praising and testimonies of God and perhaps ideally turn and repent and put their faith in him and, and glorify our Heavenly Father. Uh, my wife likes cooking and I like that she likes cooking because she does a real good job of it. And it does count for something when I thank her and I say, honey, that was wonderful, thanks, you know, you're a really good cook. And I do say that. But it's far more glorifying of her when I say that in the presence of others. You see how that works? 
It's something that Christians so easily get wrong. We've, we've sort of got this cultural thing where when it comes to praise of God, which we always think needs to be song, which of course it doesn't, but here I am, I'm going to praise God and everyone else disappears. And it's just me telling God how good he is. And there's this kind of experiential element that... But that's not actually what the Bible envisages as praise. It surely is a part thereof, but far more often than not, it's we will tell of his great deeds. Here in our passage, David humbles himself and he praises God, not for cooking, of course, but for God's incredible promise in which David's family line would now be instrumental and through which blessing would eventually be brought to all humanity. But it's not only God's promise that drives David to prayer and praise, it's also the fact that this promise ensures that God's work of redemption will be made effective forever. This promise ensures that God's work of redemption will be made effective forever. What do I mean by that? Well, read with me first from verse 23. He continues, And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself and to make a name for himself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people whom you redeemed, note the repetition, from Egypt. You have established your people Israel as your very own forever and you, Lord, have become their God. In the Exodus event, God was redeeming, that is, he was purchasing out of slavery a people to be his very own treasured possession. And now that he has promised Israel a king would rule over them forever, well, there's a bit of one plus one here in terms of the logic. You see, a king does not exist without a kingdom. So if God has promised that there will forever be a king on the throne of David, there will forever be a king for this redeemed people, then it follows that these redeemed people will be around forever. They will never cease to not be. Those he has redeemed are those he has established as his people forever. The people group that you and I call Israel has never and will never cease to exist. And so it is with God's church. God's church, made up now of both Jew and Gentile, will never cease to exist. No communist or fascist dictator, no Islamic terrorist organisation, no materialistic, secularistic Western culture, no matter how determined and powerful these things may be, none of those things will ever be able to rid the earth of God's church for there will always be a king in the line of David and that king will always have a kingdom and that kingdom will always be the people of God the people of God will never cease to be God himself has redeemed a people for his very own in David's day of course he did it by the powerful event of the exodus in our day it's by the death and resurrection of Jesus and he has established his people as his own forever by ensuring that there's always a king ruling in the line of David. And just in case, I don't know if there's anyone here who fits this category, but you never know, just in case you're new to the Bible or a bit unfamiliar with the things of God, 
It's always my great joy and, frankly, my great duty to tell you that there is right now a king sitting and ruling on the throne of David. And no, it's not King Charles. That king is right now in power, enthroned, ruling over the people of God. And this particular king will never die. For he was raised from the dead in order to claim his place on that throne. And so his reign is eternal. It will never end. His name, of course, is Jesus. And God does not invite, but he commands all people everywhere to join his eternal kingdom. Of course, the way you do that is you turn from living under your own rule to living under his rule. Those who do that receive forgiveness of sins and the gift of life everlasting. You know, there's even something of what you might think of as a a new citizenship ceremony for those who join the kingdom of this son of David. We call it baptism. Repent and be baptised for the forgiveness of your sins and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, says Peter in Acts chapter 2. The deposit that guarantees everlasting life in the presence of God. That's yours in his kingdom. If ever you want to know more about that, uh, make sure you let me know on the connect form when you scan your QR code at the end and say, I want to find out more about Jesus and his kingdom, about being involved in it, or about even having a ceremony to celebrate my citizenship there, which we call baptism. But back to our passage, the final part of David's prayer is where we get the prayer of the prayer. Now, I said that phrase this morning, thinking that that was Christianish. You know how Christians have funny language from time to time, you know? Christianese, yeah? Like Christian salad is the one with the crispy noodles in it. Yeah, right, so the the prayer of the prayer, right? But apparently, that's not really a thing. It's just like a, maybe it's an old person thing. Has anyone heard that expression, the prayer of the prayer? I think I rest my case. <laughs> it's all right, I'm putting myself in that category. You know, so, yeah, I'm old as well, boss. Um, okay, I'm going to have to explain it to you. Generally speaking, prayer is talking to God. You've all probably heard that before. Right? What's prayer? Talking to God. Now, that's true generally. But it's not true specifically. You see, the Bible distinguishes many means of talking to God. For example, thanksgiving is speaking to God and thanksgiving and prayer are spoken of as two means of talking to God, two different things. Confession is distinct from prayer. Praise is distinct from prayer. But all these things are talking to God. David is talking to God, but what's the prayer bit? Well, the prayer is when you're actually asking for something. Dear God, please can I? Dear God, give me this or that, please. So when you hear the phrase, if you ever hear the phrase, maybe it's, it's, it's out of use now, the prayer of the prayer, what are you actually asking for? That's what it is. So David is speaking to God. He's thanked God. He's praised God. But what's his prayer? What's he going to pray to God for? Well, that's what we get in the final part. Uh, strangely... And I think this is going to be the sort of really revelational for us. What David asks God to do is what he already knows God will do. 
What David prays for is what he's already assured of. To put it another way, David's prayer is in essence an expression of assent to God's promise. Read with me from verse 25, and now, Lord God, here's the prayer, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you promised, so that your name will be great forever. Then people will say, the Lord Almighty is God over Israel and the house of your servant David will be established in your sight. You know, it's almost like saying, let your kingdom come and your will be done so that your name perhaps will be hallowed. You see, God's kingdom is going to come, his will is going to be done, but we're right to pray it. We're right to show our assent by asking God to do what he will already do. And that's an insanely low bar when it comes to prayer, by the way. See, if God has promised that through the line of David, he'd rule, oops, sorry, He'd rule by his chosen king over his chosen people forever. If that's what God has promised, then of course there is zero possibility of that not happening. It is only ever always 100% certainty that God's word will come to pass. His promise will come to fruition and be fulfilled. Which of course you and I know now that it has come in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And yet David's actual prayer is that God would do as he promised. I suspect that you and I don't think of prayer like this often enough. But on the basis of God's word to us tonight, we must absolutely conclude that prayer is, at least in part, therefore, an expression of joyful trust in the sure promise of God. I think I've learned that a little bit recently. I wouldn't have been able to articulate this earlier, but prayer is an expression of joyful trust in the sure promise of God. It's also the natural response to what God has revealed about his plan of salvation. So verse 27, David continues, Lord Almighty God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant, saying, I'll build a house for you. So your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. See the so there? You've promised this, therefore I found courage. This is a response. God has spoken, he's revealed, so I will in response speak back to him. Verse 28, Sovereign Lord, you are God, your covenant is trustworthy and you have promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, Sovereign Lord, have spoken and with your blessing the house of your servant will be blessed forever. It's basically emphasising the same request through repetition. God, do as you have promised. My prayer is is an expression of assent to your promised plan of salvation. Now, of course, uh, in David's day, God's plan was still in the process of coming to fruition. David, as we heard from James last week, David would grow old and die eventually. And someone from his bloodline, from each successive generation would take over his throne and this would be the system forever. I think the word forever occurs seven times in this uh, second half of the chapter. So David reasoned, and we know he did this from elsewhere in the Bible, David reasoned that eventually one of his descendants, someone in this plan, one of, one of his line, 
would eventually somehow not see decay. Death would sort of not prevent them from from ruling into eternity. That he would therefore be raised from the dead, perhaps, in order to rule over an eternal kingdom. That's about the most David, I think, could have known. But I doubt David could have imagined that that same descendant would quite literally also be the house that God chose as his dwelling place. The descendant would not only build the house, he would actually be the house. Here's how the New Testament puts it. In Jesus, all the fullness of deity, that is, all the godness of God, all the stuff of God, lives, dwells in bodily form. And in referring to his own body, Jesus confirmed it. He said, destroy this temple, pointing to himself, I'll raise it again in three days. You see, the great son of David, who was raised from the dead to prove he's the one chosen by God to rule over God's people, also turned out to be the true temple, the one place God chose as a dwelling for his great name. You'll come across Christians who have this weird idea that somehow in the modern-day nation-state of Israel in Jerusalem that somehow the temple has to be made God's dwelling again. That's because they kind of don't look too, too much at their Bibles. Jesus is the dwelling place of God. And those who come into the kingdom of Jesus are so united with him that we can be said to dwell right now in the presence of of God. We are raised up with Jesus and seated at God's right hand. In David's day, the promised plan of God was still being worked out. In our day, it's been fulfilled. And we're sitting in that same house, sitting in the house of the Lord. We have even more reason to assent to God's promise in prayer than David. You see, No matter how despondent or deficient your prayer life may be, if you are in Christ, you're sitting in that house, that temple of the Lord, permanently. And it is a pretty low bar to say, I assent to your promised plan. I want your kingdom to come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In fact, that's where I'm going to go in terms of implications for this passage. When Jesus taught his followers how to pray, what he gave us was a means by which no matter how defeated or despondent we might be, we can always express our assent to God's promised plan of salvation. As a matter of fact, when you are despondent or defeated in your prayer life, it actually makes even more sense to consider how Jesus taught us to pray. It's actually a very low bar. In Matthew chapter 6, there's two times the Lord's Prayer occurs in the New Testament, right? Matthew chapter 6, it's not what to pray, it's how to pray. Jesus taught them how to pray. Now, that's significant because, sadly, a lot of Christians over the ages have got this idea that if we recite the words of the Lord Prayer, perhaps do it 10 times or something stupid like that, then it'll be really effective, you know, because we've said the words over and over again. And what's hysterical is in the very context in Matthew where it's given, Jesus bags out the idea of pagans who think they'll be heard because they babble on and on with many words. What a sad reality that in some circles we've thought that we have to say 20 times the Lord's Prayer in order to get some sort of merit from God. No, it's how to pray, it's a model. But in Luke 11, where it also occurs, 
It is what to say. Here's what to say, says Jesus. And its content is as simple as it is theologically rich. Try it. You've got a bad prayer life? Try even one line of the Lord's Prayer a couple of times in the week. Try it. Speaking of which, I assume you all know it, but each little bit bears a little bit of explanation. We pray our Father in heaven, the craziest line in that is Father, because only those who come to know Jesus as their Lord and Saviour have the great blessing of being adopted into the family of God. We forget how amazing it is that we can call God Father. And we say, Father, we want your name to be hallowed. We want your name to be made holy. Will God's name be hallowed? The answer is yes. As a matter of fact, the day is coming when every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But we're right to pray for it. And it's actually asking God for something at the same time because if I want to hallow God's name, that means I'm going to live in such a way that doesn't reflect poorly on his name. We obviously, in the Lord's Prayer, pray that his kingdom would come and again... I've got news for you. There is 0% chance of this not happening. To put it in the positive, there is a 100% chance, it's not a chance, it's a certainty, that God's kingdom will come. His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We will get tomorrow's bread today. I don't know when, but it's going to happen. Why would you keep praying it? Well, I can think of a number of reasons. Who's freaked out at the moment because they're doing their HSC in hopes that Jesus will show up tomorrow? Right? There's one. On a more serious note, even, there are more serious things, believe me. Who was here last week for the Harrington Park 20-year celebration? Anyone come to that last week? Yeah, hands down. There was a fantastic uh, interview of one of our dear brothers who's going through immense difficulty, uh, life-altering and life-ending, frankly, difficulty, And it would make profound sense in light of what he said to say, gee, Lord, it'd be good if Jesus would return, fix up this mess, clean up this muck, have this all over and done with. Your kingdom come. Never wrong to pray it, people. Obviously, within the prayer, I know we... Oh, I've got one. I'm reversing the order. And before the forgiveness, I'm going to talk about temptation. Uh, We want to be um, led not into temptation and delivered from evil. Who reckons once in their life, we'll start with a really low bar one, who reckons once they've been led into temptation? Who reckons, if you haven't put up your hand, you just were, you're led into the temptation to be dishonest. Um, Temptation in and of itself is not actually wrong because Jesus was tempted. But the reason you prayed is because you don't want to be led into evil. You want to be delivered from evil, right? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's the recognition that you need God's help to do that for a start. Uh, If ever there's one good reason for prayer that's kind of like really, you know, hits you in your experience, it's like, yeah, God, uh, that whole temptation thing, that whole evil thing, please help me from that. You, You could legit pray that on a daily basis, right? Because... There's temptations daily and some of us slip into evil frequently. The one about forgiveness is about more than forgiveness. You know this bit, right? Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Well, think about the logic here. 
What I want from you, God, needs to be reflected in what I value. And that's seen in how I treat other people. See how that works? I want forgiveness from God. If I don't have forgiveness from God, I'm stuffed, I'm sunk. I can't be in his presence without forgiveness. But if I really want that, that's going to be seen in the way that I kind of deal with those who wrong me. I'm going to really want to long for forgiveness and and, and restoration with them, aren't I? It's almost like saying, dear God, please let me not be a hypocrite. And I kind of know that I am. You know that funny old saying, you know, people say the church is full of hypocrites. No, we're not. We've got room for one more. Come and join us, right? Or is that new for you young ones as well? (laughs) It's actually in line, would you believe, with not taking the Lord's name in vain. You're like, what, Ben? Lord's Prayer, Ten Commandments. You've you've lost me, Ben. What do we mean taking the Lord's name in vain, right? I invent a school. Let's call it St. Benny's. And it's in in Whoop-Whoop, right? St. Benny's in Whoop-Whoop is a, a great school. And uh, the people that walk out of the school have their uniform on and their uniform says St. Benny's in Whoop Whoop, right? And one kid from the school walks out of there and he sees an old lady and he kicks her, sees a bus and he throws a big egg at it, sees a store and he goes in, he just steals stuff, puts it in his pockets and walks. This is an ultimate jerk of a kid, right? And he does it all with this this uniform that says St. Benny's from Whoop Whoop. Of course, he gets caught, the principal pulls him in and he says... You have given our school such a bad name. You've given me a bad name. See, we always think that taking the Lord's name in vain means using Jesus Christ as a swear word or something. And that, of course that is. Don't do it. That's bad. That's taking, I hate it when people say, oh my God, like, yeah. I know it's a pet peeve. I should let it go. But as if you're a Christian, don't say that, right? Imagine I used your mum's name as a swear word when I felt like it, you know? Well, why would you do that to God? Anyway, but that's a tiny bit. It's living in a way that's consistent with the God we know and love. Dear God, you forgive my sin. I want to live in accordance with that value. I want to forgive the sins of others. I don't want to take your name in vain. Isn't that cool how that works? See, the Lord's Prayer gets you a whole lot of stuff in one small package. Now, we're going to pray the Lord's Prayer in just a moment. I think whoever's leading in prayer tonight is going to do that for us. Good. And when that person leads in prayer say it, think about the words, think about this very small bar and think about the fact that you're just assenting to God's promised plan of salvation. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, it's not actually a bad way to turn and come in because you're saying, God, I now assent to your promised plan. I I want your kingdom to come. I want to be forgiven for my sin. I'm going to pray now, not that, and then we're going to have more prayer with the Lord's Prayer. hope that makes sense. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your wonderful plan of salvation. Wherein the great son of David rose to claim his eternal throne. And in your amazing kindness, you allow us to join that kingdom and that upon joining, we receive the forgiveness of our sins in the indwelling of your spirit that enables us to live for your kingdom that enables us to avoid temptation, that enables us to praise you to others. Heavenly Father, for those of us for whom prayer is a difficulty, or perhaps in the future will be, may we, like the example of the great King David, see the ease and the goodness of just assenting to your promised plan of salvation. May we be those who, as Jesus taught, are happy to pray your kingdom come, 
are happy to pray against temptation, are happy to pray that your name is hallowed, and are happy to pray that we will not be hypocritical. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.